Hello and welcome to Ocean Matters from the Bertarelli Foundation. I'm Helen Cheresky. If you're to believe what the movies tell you, and we all know we should take that with a pinch of salt, the thing to fear most when you're out on the open ocean is the sudden appearance of a large triangular grey fin circling your boat, the sure sign of a menacing monster with large teeth and a killer instinct that is coming to get you. It's not hard to see why sharks are the first choice for filmmakers who want an ocean assassin. They do have big teeth and they are top predators. But this is an extremely narrow view of a shark and it's really unfair to most shark species. These fascinating creatures come in a huge variety of shapes and sizes and we're still unpicking exactly how they live and breed. So we're going to spend this whole episode talking about sharks and how these magnificent fish sense their worlds, spend their time, and even how they help reef ecosystems. To find out what makes a shark a shark and why we need to protect them, I'll be joined by three fabulous guests. First up is shark conservationist and scientific advisor to the Save Our Seas Foundation, Sarah Fowler, and she's here to explain why sharks are so brilliant. Dr. David Jackby from the Zoological Society of London will describe shark social structures. And Dr. Aldov from Georgia Aquarium tells me about a shark like no other, the whale shark. Because sharks have been around for such a very long time, they are incredibly varied, incredibly different. They come together in these large numbers and they just cruise next to one another. So they're not hunting, they're not reproducing or mating. And this can be seen as a kind of downtime for them. Sharks are survivors. The first shark-like fish we know of lived around 400 million years ago, and that is well over 100 million years before the first dinosaurs came along. In the earliest years, it's thought that more than 60% of all the fish in the sea were sharks. They survived several of Earth's mass extinction events, and even when the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs killed almost all of them, there were still enough sharks lurking in the depths of the ocean that some of them squeaked through. Part of the reason sharks survived is that evolution has produced a huge range of shark family members that could occupy lots of different ecological niches. While some early sharks looked quite like the sharks we see today, Others had far more bizarre body forms, with features perhaps like spikes on their heads. Today, we know of at least 1,200 species of shark, and we are still finding more. These include skates and rays, as well as the more familiar species like oceanic whitetips, and you can find them in almost every corner of the ocean. They can be small or shy or excellent at hiding themselves. Sharks are a critical part of life in the ocean, but the numbers don't lie, and sharks are seriously threatened. Since 1970, the global abundance of oceanic sharks and rays has declined by 71%. This drop has increased the global extinction risk to the point at which three quarters of shark species are threatened with extinction. As we heard in the first episode, our baseline for what we consider a healthy population of sharks is changing. But what are the threats and why do these animals need protection? I spoke with Sarah Fowler, who's the scientific advisor to the Save Our Seas Foundation, and she explained that while there are many different types of sharks, they do have some things in common. First of all, all of the sharks have cartilaginous skeletons and they have little tiny tooth-like scales. They have five to seven pairs of gill slits on the side of the head, or if they're a ray underneath their head. 
So the variety of sharks extends from absolutely enormous animals like the whale shark down to tiny little lantern sharks. You can hold an adult lantern shark in the palm of your hand. They are so small. But the average shark is really no more than a meter long, probably a bit smaller than that. It's not just gray and boring. It's highly colored. It's highly patterned if it lives in shallow water because it needs to camouflage itself. And um, they are all descended from this common ancestor. So the question of what makes a shark a shark, we know that they, they don't have bones. They have cartilage instead of bones. So they're which is a more flexible structure uh, to build themselves from. And the thing that people associate with sharks is their teeth. So tell us a little bit about what, what's distinctive about sharks' teeth. Well, they're incredibly hard. Um, this is why we know so much about fossil sharks, because the teeth are left in the fossil record. Sharks constantly lose their teeth throughout their lifetime. Uh, the teeth grow in parallel rows, and those rows are constantly moving forward and falling out. The other interesting thing about them is that the shape of the teeth differ not only inside the jaw and different parts of the jaw. So you have one set of teeth for grabbing slimy squid and another set of teeth maybe for, for munching down and cutting. But they also change with age. Some of the sharks that live on the seabed and just munch away at mollusks and crustacea have teeth which are just basically two big grinding platforms to break the shells. Perhaps the most interesting biting sharks are the little cookie cutters, and the name gives away what they do to live. They have enormous teeth in their jaws, and they take out little round plugs of flesh from much, much larger animals by basically fixing onto the beast, closing their fleshy lips around the skin, and then just twisting round. So it's quite common in fish markets to see tuna or swordfish with these round chunks cut out of them as if someone has just been there with a, a biscuit cutter. And how about their gills? How do sharks extract oxygen from their surroundings? Sharks have these rows of gill slits. Water comes in the mouth and it goes out across the gills. Some sharks can lie around on the seabed and they can just gulp water. They can oxygenate their gills just while they're lying around. But the really fast sharks like the makos, which are constantly speeding around the ocean, actually are what we call ram ventilators. They um, That's such a good the, word. Such a good it phrase. <laughs> it would be even better if I could say the letter R, which I can't. So anyway, ram ventilator, they're just forcing their way through the water. The water's coming in through their mouth and going out through their gills, and that is how they get the oxygen out of the water. So they have to keep swimming in order to be taking in oxygen. They do. And so if they stop for any reason, the chances are they're, they're going to suffocate. I've dived with sharks a reasonable amount for science. You know, you see them around because they, they, they're they curious. They come and look at what you're doing. And they're masters of their sensory world. It's not just that they are powerful animals and that they are physically well adapted to their environment, but they also are very, they have very good senses for what's going on around it. So tell us a little bit about shark senses. They have a fantastic sense of smell. And if a shark is looking for something to eat in the deep ocean, it gets a little whiff on the currents, it will start to follow the trail, the scent trail through the water. And sharks have nostrils. The nostrils are just for scent. 
Then, of course, some of them have astonishing eyesight, really, really good eyesight. And a few species will actually stick their heads out of the water and have a look to see what's going on above the surface as well as beneath the surface. And they use other senses. They have a whole series of little organs along their body, little tubes, which can sense changes in water pressure. So they can tell when there's something close to them and they can tell whether it's moving in a sort of smooth manner or whether it's jerky, perhaps it's a, a fish in distress. But the really, really cool things that sharks do, which is, is almost impossible to imagine really, is that they can sense electric currents. Just imagine if you were able to to sense with your eyes completely shut, your ears blocked, you could sense someone coming into the room because you can pick up the electric currents that come off every single living thing. So these tools, you can use them to find prey, even if it's hidden in the mud or in the complete dark. And you can also use them when you want to travel really long distances in a straight line through the ocean when there are no landmarks. And that is the coolest thing about sharks, the electrosense. So sharks have this this spectacularly useful sense. And the sad thing, I think, is that in spite of being these masters of the ocean, they're still in trouble. What are the biggest threats to sharks today? Fishing. Fishing and fishing and fishing. Basically, that's, that's far and away the biggest threat. And it can be target fishing or it can be accidental catch. So that's when a shark just gets tied up in the... A net of other fish. Yes. There are many species of fish that are overfished, but then there are practices like shark finning that are specific to sharks. Tell us a little bit about what that is. Well, shark finning became a big issue in the late 80s, early 90s, when markets for shark fin soup really began to expand in Asia. So the practice of shark finning really took off. And this is when a shark is caught its fins are cut off and kept, and then the carcass is thrown back into the sea. And there's really nothing good you can say about this. It's a waste of food, particularly in developing countries. It doesn't help fisheries managers and scientists who want to know how many sharks are being caught and what species they are. But it was made a lot of sense in trade terms. And we should emphasise that the shark is often put back alive. So the fin is taken off and the shark is just left to, to sink and it, it's it's barbaric whatever you think of um, it is yes it's, fishing. it's really it's really really awful fisheries managers and wildlife conservationists worked very very hard for many years to make it illegal and now finning is illegal in most parts of the world in, in big fisheries you've you've you hold a lot of titles you've done a huge amount of work uh, to protect sharks what's happening overall now to protect sharks? Well, for the last 20 years or so, we've been working hard in the big international conventions. Um, we have been getting some of the species which are most heavily traded for their fins and meat onto the appendices of CITES. And then we work with countries to help them implement those listings. Most of CITES isn't about total bans. It's about sustainable fishing. And then, of course, we also try to tell people a lot about it. We try to talk about this a lot and write books and write magazines and, uh, of course, set up the organisations that people can turn to when they want more information. Sarah Fowler from the Save Our Seas Foundation. 
It's also well worth looking out for the Sharks of the World book, which Sarah has co-authored. There's an updated edition out right now, and it's full of illustrations of every species of shark we know of, their life history, evolution, and lots more. One of the defining features of a Hollywood shark is that it's alone, a silent predator lurking in the depths. Even in traditional mythology from the South Pacific, sharks are depicted as solitary gods or hunters. But is that fair? The reality is that quite a few species of sharks do form large groups called aggregations. The most famous example of this is probably the hammerhead sharks, and we've seen those amazing photographs of the silhouettes of their aggregations when seen from below. They can be accepting of one another, these sharks, and can form social hierarchies. A recently published study from Fiji shows that bull sharks develop companionships, with some sharks showing preferences for certain individuals and avoiding others. Dr David Jacobi is from the Bertarelli Foundation's Marine Science Programme, and he studies these shark social structures. He kicked things off by explaining why certain species form these groups. Well, it really varies. Uh, hammerhead example, we tend to think of these polarised schools that we see in, in hammerheads as being a period of refuging behaviour. So they're not hunting, they're not reproducing or mating, but they come together in these large numbers and they just cruise next to one, one another with very little energy. They just sort of move along side by side. And this can be seen as a kind of downtime for them, um, where they're expending less energy because they're swimming as a school and they're being very tolerant of one another. But really it varies hugely across, across the different groups. For example, in some benthic sharks, so that's species that live on the bottom, we see in, say, the small-spotted cat shark or, or dogfish, if you're a resident of the south coast of the UK, females will pack together in rocky crevices in these female-only refuges to avoid male sexual harassment, essentially. So there's a whole host of different reasons why they might socialise. And do we know anything about how they communicate with each other? I mean, obviously they can see each other, but do they do they hear or smell or do they use their other senses to communicate? This is very much unknown territory for us, really. I think within sharks, it's so much more difficult to understand whether there is any form of communication passing between individuals. I suspect there is some chemical communication going on. Occasionally we see changes and deviations in behaviour that suggest maybe this individual isn't particularly happy with that one being too near it, or there's a, a sort of hierarchy there based on size or sex or something. But they don't give much away, and that's the challenge of trying to figure out some of these kind of questions around social interactions in sharks. And I guess, there, I mean, there's, there, there is so much richness, because people say a shark as though a shark was one thing, but there are species that kind of hang out in the same place. So presumably they're a bit easier to study, like reef sharks. Absolutely, yeah. And this is something that I've focused some of my research on recently, is sharks that have an attachment to a certain area, like reef sharks. So we know, for example, that grey reef sharks have a core area that they kind of operate out of. And when they go and forage offshore at night from the reef, they'll disappear for a night or two at a time, and then always come back to the same place. We've set up uh, monitoring equipment around some of these reefs to try and understand kind of the timings of these kind of arrivals and departures of individuals to try and get a handle on whether the same individuals are leaving offshore at night at the same time every day and whether these groups are assorted into little communities essentially um, that stay very much to themselves and they, and they tend to do that which is what's interesting. I mean it's great just to describe all these things that sharks might be doing but obviously if you want to study them that comes with a few practical problems um, not least that we're a land-based species and not not ocean-based by default so how would you actually go about finding out you know it's fine you know you can dive and you can look at what a shark is doing if you happen to come across it but how do you do this more systematically? 
what we've tried to do is to try and get more of a kind of round the clock picture of this. So we, we use acoustic telemetry. So this is receivers placed on the seabed that listen out for a specific frequency. And then we have tags that are on the animals themselves that give off a coded ID, basically. And if a shark swims within roughly 500 meters of one of our receivers, it just logs an individual, a time and a date. Um, very much in the same way that if we're using a, a public metro system or a transport system, we might use a card to check in and it says, I'm here now and I've moved to this place. And so based on doing that, but with multiple animals at the same time, so tens of individuals at the same time, we can start to understand and build up a picture of how animals might move collectively between different receiver locations, whether they always arrive at the same time, whether they go offshore and come back together again as well. Once you've got tags on sharks and, you know, you can track them moving around, what, what are you learning using all of that? We can basically understand how animals are distributed in space and time. And this is really important for uh, not just from an ecological point of view to understand, you know, where different sizes and sexes might hang out, but also from a conservation point of view, because in many of the places that we have this equipment and we're monitoring sharks, they're also prone to either legal or illegal fishing activity. And so we can know where these aggregations form, how frequent they are, how long they might last, which is obviously really useful. But we also can put this in the context of other processes, other biological processes. So Large sharks can bring nutrients from the deep water where they might forage back onto the reef and deposit that on the reef. So having an understanding of the, the distribution of groups and individuals and how they move across the reef also informs how this nutrient process might, might flow as well. So one, as you're learning more about how they live and how they're, what they do with their time, is that helpful in actually protecting the species? Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's a really important point to raise here is that there is clearly a general interest in the ecology of these animals. You know, they're fascinating. They're very unknown in many instances, but they're also highly threatened. You know, many large species of shark globally have faced significant declines in the last 40 years. So that's the context in which we work. And often it's harder to come across these sharks in the first place to study them because of that reason. But really, once we can build up more long term information about where individuals are moving we can then start to overlay that with things like environmental data, either remotely sensed from satellites or in situ monitoring. We can overlay it with things like the footprint of fisheries and see how that might overlap with the areas of space use that we see in many different species. And even things like enforcement within marine protected areas. So within the, the Chagos archipelago, where we do much of this work, there is still an issue with illegal fishing activity. And there is an enforcement vessel whose task it is to try and intercept those vessels. So what we've been doing in the past is to try and use some of this biological information from the animals to try and inform where we think the enforcement vessel should go. And so we've been basically learning from where the sharks tend to hang out and, and the areas they move between most frequently and directly informing the enforcement vessel that this is a, a, a rich period in space and time that you should be covering to try and mitigate against removal of these animals. Dr. David Jacobi from the Zoological Society of London. And you can find out more about David's work on the Bertarelli Foundation's website, marine.science. We've heard that sharks come in a range of sizes and that they can be social creatures that tend to stay in one place. But then there's the whale shark, which defines everything we've said so far. 
Now, there's an important point to start with here, which is that a whale shark is a shark and not a whale. There is an easy way to tell the difference between sharks and whales. If you look at their tails as they swim, whale and dolphin tails go up and down, but shark tails go side to side. And there are lots of other differences. So, for example, whales breathe air whilst sharks breathe water. Whale sharks are the biggest fish in the world, and the biggest ones can measure 45 feet long, so 13 or 14 metres. Dr. Al Dove from the Georgia Aquarium studies these brilliant giants, and he explained just why he loves them. I've loved whale sharks for years. Ever since I was a kid, I've found this species amazing. This is a species that likes to spend most of its time near the surface of the water. But interestingly enough, they're one of the deepest diving fish, actually the deepest diving fish. I guess they call them whale sharks because their habits and behavior are fairly similar to the great whales. They're huge and plankton eating and peaceful. And so that sort of reminds people about a whale. Um, they, they live anywhere in the world around the tropics. So anywhere where the water's really above about 21 degrees Celsius. But since the mid 1990s, we've learned of about a couple of dozen places in the world now where they show up relatively close to the coast with enough reliability that you can plan on being there at the time and encounter them. And that really made it possible for scientists to start planning systematic research where we could really start to understand this species because we knew where they were going to be. So there's a there's a paradox in what you just said, which is that if they mostly eat plankton, plankton harvest sunlight, so that you tend to find that in the upper surface waters where there's lots of sunlight. So if you're a fish that does that, why on earth are you going down to two kilometres? Yeah, that, that's probably one of the most vexing questions that's been bugging me for years is we know that this species is the deepest diving fish. 1,928 metres is the current maximum recorded depth. Um, but that's actually a little bit misleading because it's limited by the tags that are available at the moment. There aren't really any tags um, commercially available that can record further than that. So it's possible that they're diving a great deal deeper than that. We just don't know. As you mentioned, the question is why? Like, why would you go down there if your food is right on the surface? Why go two, three kilometers down into the ocean? We don't really know the answer to that either. Um, so it's, it's very frustrating. There's a number of different theories. Um, personally, I'm, I'm sort of swayed by the idea that they do it as a very efficient way of traveling long distances. So it's not, when we say dive, it's not like a vertical dive. They don't point their nose at the bottom and, and dive straight down like say a sperm whale would do if it was chasing giant squid. It's more of a glide. They just stop beating their tails and slide down into extraordinary depths at a very, very shallow angle of descent. And when they get there, they seem to just gradually start beating their tails and change the angle on their fins a little bit and start coming gradually back up again. Turns out that you can go a very long way horizontally if you glide down for the first half of the journey. So that's a severe range to put yourself through. So why ever they do it, there has to be a really good reason. All science is detective work, really, when you get down to it. But it sounds as though you've got a particularly good uh, subject. One of those amazing things is that such a big animal can still have so many mysteries associated with it. Because it must be so frustrating, like, if you see one, it's right here. How can you not know more about it? It's actually a really hard species to study because of the, of the, the depths that they can swim to and the, the ranges of ocean that they can cover and the, the general 
scarcity throughout most of the ocean just makes it a really difficult species to come to grips with. And then paradoxically, this is now one of the best known shark species. So that doesn't speak well of what we know about the rest of the thousand odd species of, of sharks and rays that are out there. So it's really the white shark, the whale shark, and some other key species like the nurse shark that are very well studied these days. And yet, we don't know how long they live exactly. We don't know where they give birth. We don't know where they mate. Um, we don't know how deep they can swim. All of these great unanswered questions that that still hang over whale shark scientists and pretty much mock us on a daily basis. Well, it sounds like the shark scientists have got a lot of homework to be getting on with. The question of reproduction is clearly critical because, you know, in, in the questions about species conservation, if you have species that can reproduce quickly, they are a bit more robust because if you give them the chance, there's lots of offspring. What's the situation with whale sharks? Do they do they reproduce quickly? Do they produce lots of offspring? How does it work? Yeah, so there's not a huge amount known, but what we do know speaks to a sort of unusual strategy where they delay maturation for a long time. So it's generally thought that most whale sharks mature at around nine meters of length. So you're talking about a, you know, a 30-foot animal before it's a grown-up. Um, but once they do that, um, they are able to produce large numbers of offspring. Everything we know about that is based on one female who was in, examined in Taiwan in 1996. She had more than 300 babies in her uterus, by far the largest litter size of any shark. And so it seems like they, they put off reproduction until quite late in life, but then they make up for it uh, with volume. And that's probably a good thing too, because I imagine a newborn whale shark is probably pretty defenseless. And it's maybe not a surprise that we don't know where they are. My guess is they scatter into the, the deep layers of the ocean and they don't come back to the surface until they're ready to mix it up with tiger sharks and other big things that might like to eat them. So when it comes to protection, we don't know very much about where it goes or what it does. All these uncertainties that you've described, and they can go lots of places. They can be very deep. They can cross oceans. How do you go about protecting a species like that? Yeah, with great difficulty in short. Uh, yeah, it's a real challenge. Their population has gone down by more than 50% globally and a great deal more than that, unfortunately, in the Indian Ocean because the populations in the Western Indian Ocean uh, may be down considerably more than that. Because individual animals can cross so many jurisdictions over the course of their life history, anything that you do pretty much needs to be international or multilateral or regional approaches to things, which means you have to get different countries to agree on doing things together. And as we all know, that's not necessarily very easy. International trade in whale shark parts is, is not legal, and it's pretty much illegal to fish for whale sharks, to target whale sharks for fisheries anywhere in the world these days. Uh, that's changed a lot over the years as the profile of this species has gone up. But also having you know, space-based or place-based protections, marine protected areas like national parks that, that protect a species while it's in a certain area. Those are a really important part of the solution. And if, if you're lucky enough to be one of those places where they gather in big numbers, then you've got great reason to protect that area and, and then thereby protecting all the other special animals that, that make those waters their home as well. And if a species is a filter feeder, I mean, these species are not selective. They just open their mouth and whatever goes in, goes in. And of course, humans are putting things like plastic into the ocean, which will go in along with everything else. What, what are the consequences of those for the sharks? 
Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because the, the, the plastic thing is something that we worry about a lot. If you think about the way a whale shark feeds, right at the surface, usually with its top jaw out of the water and they're sort of hoovering that very surface layer of, of water in, if there were ever an animal that was sort of designed to suck floating plastic off the ocean, it would be a whale shark. They really ill-adapted to dealing with the plastics crisis. So for whale sharks at the moment, how optimistic are you that their future is going to be better than their recent past? I'm actually quite optimistic. Um, I have a book coming out later this summer about whale sharks, which I co-edited with Simon Pierce from the, the Marine Megafauna Foundation. But he concluded from his analysis, which was the first time this had been done from whale sharks, that, that they have the capacity to come back to 100% of their pre-industrial population. And that enough in and of itself is, is enough hope to, to really keep you going. I think that the problem for lots of ocean creatures, and especially sharks, is that the first question we humans have usually asked is, what can this do for me? Or what can it do to me? And the default assumption is that if we can eat it, we should kill it. If it threatens us or gets in our way, we should chase it away or kill it. And if we happen to harm the animal in some other way, well, it's not a problem because we didn't want it anyway. And it's all just about us. It's just one big ego trip. But we do know enough now to see the error in that way of thinking, which is that it forgets that we're part of the same system, that what makes whole ecosystems resilient is variety and richness, and that animals like sharks are important even if we can't see their immediate connection to us. So yes, some sharks have big teeth, but evolution has given this group of animals a fascinating collection of adaptations to ocean life, enough to survive almost everywhere in the ocean. They are masters of the ocean world, and we're still learning just how good their mastery is. But we do owe them a little bit more help and respect. And I think that the fascinating journey of discovering more about them will be incredibly rewarding. There are so many more shark mysteries to explore. But we can only do it if we accept sharks as a valuable part of our world. Thank you to Sarah Fowler, Dr. David Jacobi and Dr. Aldo. Next time on Ocean Matters, we'll be continuing the investigation into one of the biggest threats to marine life, fisheries and poaching. What's the extent of the damage this can do? And how can we create sustainable fishing practices around the world? I'm Helen Chersky, and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Follow us or subscribe now so you never miss an episode. <laughs>